Well, as always, thank you for joining me as we continue our study through the book of Genesis. I'm your host, Randy Duncan. And in the last episode, we began a discussion of God's call of Abraham. And I mentioned how this would not have been an easy thing for Abraham to do, to just pick up and leave his home and his land and everything that he knew and follow God's calling. I mean, sure, sounds like a no-brainer for us looking back at the story, but Abraham didn't have the benefit of our hindsight. He had to make a conscious decision to trust God, to place his faith in God, that God would deliver on his promises. I also mentioned in the last episode that I'll refer to them as Abraham and Sarah for the sake of convenience, even though God has not yet changed their names. And so we'll pick it up here in chapter 12, verse 4. And verse 4 through 6 reads, So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed Haran. And Abraham took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah, At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And so we see that, of course, Abraham decides to trust what God has promised him, and he sets out from Haran towards Canaan. So first off, notice how old Abraham is when he leaves his home. He's 75. I mean, that's 10 years past our modern retirement age. Even though Abraham lives to be 175, and I've already mentioned the rapidly declining lifespans we're now seeing in Genesis, it's important to understand that he's still no spring chicken. He's no longer in the prime of his life. And it seems that as we age, we're just less open to major changes in our lives. We become much more set in our ways. And so the decision of Abraham to just pick up and leave in an advanced age is even more admirable. Now Abraham takes his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, and all their people and possessions and begins the journey to Canaan. And just so you are aware of what we're talking about when we say Canaan, Canaan is the area we know as modern-day Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, and then small portions of Syria and Jordan. So the trip from Haran to Canaan would have been about 500 miles So if Abraham would have traveled at a normal caravan pace of about 20 miles per day, it would have still taken him about a month to make the trip. Verse 6 says that Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah. Now Shechem has been identified with Tel Balada, which is about 35 miles north of Jerusalem. And it says that at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now, the Canaanites were the people who inhabited the land prior to the Israelites. So what we see right off the bat is that there are going to be two obstacles in the way of God's promise to Abraham. First, Sarah is unable to have children. Second, the Canaanites are already in the land that God has promised to Abraham. Now, we'll discuss each of these in more detail when we get to that point, so I'm not going to do that right now. But I will mention that regarding the Canaanites... Removing them from the land has been a favorite subject for atheists and other critics and non-believers. They try and paint the story as the mean old God of the Old Testament committing genocide against a, a sweet group of peaceful, loving, righteous people living in the land. And when we get there, you're going to see that nothing could be further from the truth. 
God isn't mean and they aren't sweet. It's just another example of people parroting some supposed examples that they've heard, but that they haven't done their research. And they think this gives them an excuse or some justification for rejecting God. Verses 7 through 9 read, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. Notice in verse 7 that the Lord, quote, appeared to Abraham. It doesn't say that the Lord said to Abraham. It says that the Lord appeared to Abraham. There's a difference. God is now providing Abraham with a special sort of confirmation of his presence, perhaps as a way to solidify Abraham's faith or to reward him somehow for the steps of faith that he has already taken. And that phrase, quote, God appeared to Abraham, may be a theophany. A theophany is a, a visible manifestation or appearance of God. And there are a few examples of theophanies in the Old Testament, such as the burning bush, or when Moses talks to God on Mount Sinai, or God appearing in a pillar of fire, or what many commentators note when scripture uses the phrase, the angel of the Lord. Some commentators believe that some instances that mention the angel of the Lord is actually a Christophany, or a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And there are good arguments to believe this. And what I believe is one of the most interesting theophanies in the Old Testament, very soon, the Lord visits Abraham prior to destroying the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and with whom Abraham has a very interesting conversation. And we'll discuss that conversation when we get to it in chapter 18. But here, God again tells Abraham that he will give the land to his offspring. And yet again, Abraham must be wondering how this is going to happen since Sarah can't have children. But what Abraham doesn't understand is that this offspring will not be a natural offspring, but a supernatural one. I wonder if Mary had the same sort of confusion. But just like Abraham, she didn't understand that it was not going to be a natural offspring, but a supernatural one. You know, Paul tells us about Abraham's faith in God in Romans 8, 18-21. Paul writes there that in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And Paul goes on in the remaining verses of that chapter to further explain that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. And he explains something very important here. He tells us, that that wasn't included in scripture just to honor Abraham for his sake, but was written down also for our sake, so that we might understand that it will also be counted as righteousness for those who believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, and he was raised for our justification. So again, just like with Abraham's faith, 
It'll be counted as righteousness for those who believe God raised Jesus from the dead. So what's the first thing Abraham does when he settles in an area east of Bethel? He builds an altar, and he calls on the name of the Lord. When Abraham left his home, he also abandoned the old ways of worship. And although it would have been much easier and much more convenient, he doesn't use a Canaanite altar. He builds a new one, and thus begins Abraham's worship of God. So beginning here in verse 10, we leave behind now the the setting up of Abraham's call from God, and we now join him in his journey. And so this is where the narrative and the action that most people are familiar with begins. Verses 10 through 13 read, Now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So, for a reason we are not told, there was a famine in the land. And it may have been from locusts, could have been from war, drought, could have been from several things, but the important thing is that due to the famine, Abraham goes to Egypt. And it tells us that the famine was severe, which suggests that Abraham wasn't just reacting to the first difficulty that he encountered. And Egypt would have made sense as a place to go during a drought, as it has a dependable water source with the Nile River. It's interesting that archaeologists and geologists, they both found evidence for a massive drought that occurred during the time period in which Abraham is dated. So when they're about to enter Egypt, Abraham tells Sarah to say that she is his sister. He believes when they get to Egypt, the Egyptians will see Sarah, see that she's beautiful, and they're going to kill Abraham in order to take Sarah for themselves. So Abraham tells Sarah, look, tell them that you're my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now this brings up a few interesting questions. First, Why would Abraham believe that they would kill him if God has already promised him that he would have many descendants? Did he not trust God? Did he have doubts? Well, first of all, I think if Abraham had doubts, it wouldn't make him any different than you or I at times. I mean, we all wonder at times. We all have some doubts and ask questions and have gaps in our understanding. That doesn't make us unbelievers. I mean, furthermore, How many times do we try and take control of our own lives, try and force things to happen, rather than exercising a little more patience and trust that God's timing is perfect? So some people have actually criticized Abraham for telling Sarah to lie. They say Abraham spoke out of the fear of humans, which is therefore incompatible with faith in God. But think about that for a moment. Once he's decided to go to Egypt, It really becomes a matter of pragmatics at that point. He's doing what he thinks he needs to do in order to survive. I mean, what were his choices? If he told the Egyptians the truth, the reality is that he had every reason to believe exactly what he believed, that they would kill him and take Sarah. I mean, would that have been better? Would Sarah have been better off with Abraham dead? Some people argue that Abraham should have spoken truthfully. And so they're looking at it from a moral point of view. But which was more moral? 
For the German citizen hiding Jews in their house in Nazi Germany to lie to the SS when they knocked on the door looking for Jews? Or for the German citizen to say, oh yeah, I'm hiding eight Jews down in the basement, come on in. You see, I think there's a big difference in a life filled with lies and a one-time life-saving lie. In fact, in the book of Samuel, God actually instructs the prophet Samuel to lie. After Saul disobeyed a divine order, God instructed Samuel to go and anoint David as king. But Samuel's afraid to do so because he's afraid of Saul, and rightfully so. Samuel tells God, look, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. But rather than assuring Samuel that he would protect him, God instructs Samuel to lie, to say that he was going to sacrifice to God. The bottom line is that we don't owe would-be murderers the truth. And if a situation comes down to telling a lie in order to save a life, you tell the lie. And you go with a higher morality of saving the life. It's also important to remember here that Abraham's lie was actually only a partial lie because Sarah was his half-sister. So if you're trying to get all technical here, then verses 14 through 16, when Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So what happens is exactly what Abraham thought would happen. Or perhaps it's a little more than Abraham actually bargained for. The Egyptians see that Sarah is beautiful. They praise her to Pharaoh, and she's brought into Pharaoh's house. And because of Sarah, Abraham is treated well. And so now the question becomes, how's Abraham going to get out of this situation? I mean, what chance does he have to convince Pharaoh to give him back his, quote, sister? He has no chance. It will require divine intervention, and that's exactly what we see beginning in verse 17. Verse 17 through 20 reads, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abraham and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So God afflicts Pharaoh and his house with plagues. It's interesting that we're going to see another Pharaoh in Egypt who will be afflicted with multiple plagues. That, of course, will be Moses and his dealings with Pharaoh in Egypt. But in both cases, it's God who acts on their behalf. It's interesting that the scripture is silent on exactly what these plagues were, but whatever they were, they certainly got Pharaoh's attention. So much so that he realizes that Sarah is the reason for their suffering. So much so that he doesn't just have Sarah executed, he brings her back to Abraham. And he also doesn't have Abraham executed. I mean, it really is remarkable. Pharaoh asked Abraham, what is this you have done to me? And you think about that. Pharaoh is admonishing Abraham. He knows that Abraham has done something to him, and yet 
as Pharaoh, he doesn't seek to kill both Abraham and Sarah. I mean, I wonder how many other people throughout history have committed any sort of negative act against any Pharaoh and lived. How many people in all of history have been caught lying to a Pharaoh and lived? I mean, Pharaohs were considered gods among the Egyptians. My guess is probably none. And yet, here we see Pharaoh so impacted and afflicted that he brings Sarah back to Abraham. And all he does is admonish him and question him. But what is this that you have done to me? And then lets him go. I do think another thing to point out here is what scripture records as Abraham's response to Pharaoh. Nothing. Scripture does not record Abraham saying anything in response. Perhaps he did, and scripture simply doesn't elaborate, but I think the absence of a response is sort of a, a demonstration that Pharaoh was justified in his anger towards Abraham. And perhaps Abraham's silence, at least in scripture, expresses his guilt. And finally, we see Pharaoh giving his men orders to send Abraham and Sarah away, and ironically, leaving with more than they came in with. You know, one of the things I think about in this episode, one of the most overarching lessons for me, is that God has a plan. God is creating a covenant people who will share God with the world. And that's extremely important because people can't enter into a relationship with a God they don't know. And so nobody will prevent his plan from coming to fruition. Not a world monarch such as Pharaoh, not ourselves when we make poor decisions. And that same principle still applies today. God still has a plan and nobody is going to thwart that plan. Not the president, not the United Nations, not the media or social media, not Hollywood or Bill Gates or the universities, not you know, wolves in sheep's clothing sort of preachers, nobody is going to thwart the plan of God. And as believers, we should have confidence that God has a plan. Be grateful that he is a God that keeps his word. Be thankful that his plan is ultimately good. You know, there's, a, there's an awful lot to look at in the world today and be concerned about, to be worried about, to be afraid of. But the truth is, that's no way for a true believer in God to live their life. Are things going to be difficult at times? Absolutely. But 2 Timothy 1.7 tells us, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So through those difficult times, we should keep our faith in God, that he is ultimately in control. He knows better than we do because he can see the end from the beginning and that he loves you more than you can imagine. I thank you once again for listening, and I hope you'll join me in the next episode. And until then, God bless.